Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 5, The Kings, the human ones. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, brace yourself for a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. Getting back to David, let's look at his reaction to everything I've just laid on him about his kingdom lasting forever and so on. I've said it all through my newest, freshly assigned prophet, Nathan, in 2 Samuel 7, 2 and following. We could have introduced him before, but wanted to underscore the fact that the words Nathan relays are mine alone, and the prophet functions and speaks as if I am in the room and in him, doing the talking. Again, I love David. He totally gets it. Look at what he says to me in response to all these promises. It's the rest of 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 18, or the rest of 1 Chronicles 17, starting in verse 6, if you're the one person tracking with both accounts. David says, Who am I, O Lord Yahweh, and what is my family, that you have brought me this far? Go ahead and read the whole thing, remembering, as always, that every capitalized Lord and God really has Yahweh there in the Hebrew text. Yes, it's my unapologetic pet peeve. Verses 22 and 23 are my favorite. I'll just read those two verses for the most of you who are unable to get your owner's manual out just now. David says, How great you are, sovereign Yahweh! There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself? and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Yahweh, have become their God. And then we set about establishing the house of David kingdom-wise. Bulk of the following three chapters in Tom see David and or his troops subduing Philistines, Moabites, Arameans, Ammonites, Amalekites, and such, firming up the promised promised land borders. Of note is a summary statement which indicates that David dedicates to me all the silver, gold, and bronze he acquires in all these exploits. Uh, That's in 2 Samuel 8.10. They're put in the tabernacle treasury, not in his own coffers. He's not about getting rich in all this, but rather ensuring the strength of those borders. Of these various conflicts with various ites, one deserves mention uh, in 2 Samuel 10, not so much for its own merits, but for the context it sets for something both smaller and larger in scale and consequence. David had had peace with a particular neighboring king. When that king dies, David sends emissaries to his son, Hanun, the new king, in order to convey Israel's sympathy at the loss of this friend. And here we run into the phenomenon where the next generation thinks it knows better than the one before. 
something that's about to rear its ugly head and bite Israel in its own hind end in the near future, as a matter of fact. In spite of his father's trust of and peaceful relationship with David, new King Hanun lets his young pals convince him these Hebrew emissaries are really spies on reconnaissance to set up an attack. Not true. But to show how much smarter he is than his foolish daddy was, Hanun captures the emissaries and shames them in spectacular fashion by shaving off half their beards and stripping them naked from the waist down before sending them back towards Jerusalem. Cue the consequences. Whereas David previously had truly no intention of attacking the Greenhorn King, how unfair would that be to take advantage of a youngster's inexperience? Now, honor demands a response from David, not to mention the fact that Hanun has readied himself for battle by calling in the armies of a few allies. He's at least smart enough to know that what he's done ensures attack will come, but dumb enough to not realize he's the one who started it. David sends Joab, the right-hand man who is back in the king's graces after getting in trouble, as you'll remember, over doing David the favor of killing Abner. David sends Joab with the entire army, complete with the green berets, in order to teach the whippersnapper Hanun a lesson. And just to make sure you don't miss the fact that it's nowhere in the text there, let me point out that at no point in this incident does David inquire after me to obtain direction. So it is the spring of the year, and all the fighting men are off and away defending the honor of Israel and her king. Besides, now that the rains and mud of winter are dry, it's a spring custom to head out with your army and tidy up your borders. However, the king of Israel, who has not gone to be part of the battle, is bored. Bored and a little on the warm side this late spring afternoon. Thinking to find diversion and a cool breeze at higher elevation, David takes a stroll upon the palace rooftop and the breeze he finds there is not nearly strong enough to cool him from the temptation he finds. You see, David can see much from this bird's-eye view, including places blocked from sight at street level by walls or fences, not quite the same sprawling perspective you have from your habitat's airplanes, but high enough to see into several neighboring yards. His eye is caught by movement, and his glance falls inside the walls of a nearby garden, where, lo and behold, a stunningly beautiful naked woman is bathing out in the bright afternoon sun. Bathing where she has every right to think she'd have privacy within the confines of her own walled garden. The woman's name is Bathsheba, which has nothing to do with the fact that she is in fact taking a bath when she enters history. You are not the one person listening to this who've never heard of her, so you know what happens next. David sends for Bathsheba and takes her to bed, whether she wants to or not, then sends her home afterward. They don't carry on a sustained affair. They just have this one roll in the royal sheets and very well could have never been found out by any but the messenger boy. Except for one thing. Bathsheba's cycle is on the briefer side. And that wasn't just any old bath she was taking, but rather a ritual cleansing bath after the end of her menstrual period. 
So she's just ovulated and is as fertile as the floodplains beside the Nile when David sows his seed that afternoon, and the message comes in a couple of weeks when her next period doesn't, that his baby's on the way. Now, the reason Bathsheba is found home alone at all is that her husband Uriah is an officer in Israel's army. You see, David doesn't need some greenhorn neighbor king to disgrace him with half-shaved, half-naked messengers. David can properly disgrace and dishonor himself all on his own. David has taken advantage of this soldier's wife when David is the one who sent her husband out to battle in the first place. And the consequence cascade continues, Bathsheba's pregnancy being the first. David calls Uriah back from battle and tries to send him home to Bathsheba, where the whole town will assume they've had a great homecoming together. Then they'll further assume that the baby Bathsheba bears that winter is the result of that happy conjugal visit. The only problem is that this soldier displays exponentially more honor than David's got in his little toe right now. Uriah refuses to conjugate when all his pals are still out there in harm's way. Instead of going home to sleep with his wife, Uriah sleeps with the servants. The second night, David even gets Uriah drunk, but even in this inebriated state, Bathsheba's husband has more restraint than the sober king had, and does not lie with his own wife. And the consequence cascade rolls on. David's heart is growing calluses at this point, and since his attempts at deception couldn't get past the nobility of Uriah's heart, the calloused king sends this officer back to the battlefield with a top-secret note to Joab for Joab's eyes only. The message should have read, There is no one of greater heart or nobility in all of Israel than this man Uriah. He is to be trusted above all others and given the most important responsibility of which you have need. No, my friend. It saddens me greatly to say that instead, the note reads, Put Uriah out in front, where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. 2 Samuel eleven fourteen. And so it is done. Joab is more artful than David instructs him to be, inserting Uriah in a push at the city gates with other warriors. They find themselves close to the city walls within range of everything from arrows to rocks to hurled tinker toys or any other manner of homespun missile. This is the last thing one does in a siege, really, putting yourself in danger within range of archers and angry housewives when all you need to do is wait safely at a distance for time to pass and for the limited supplies within the walls to run out until the white flag flies above the gate. When news reaches David of Uriah's demise in this clunky military move, David doesn't upbraid his commander for this poor strategy, but rather seems to shrug it off with little more than, you gotta break a few eggs to make an omelet. When this response gets back to Joab, who knows fully well that he should be receiving criticism for letting his men get too close to the walls? The commander knows two things. He knows he's fulfilled the king's wishes, 
and he knows that the king is not thinking right. This was not a military tactic. It was murder. Joab is a smart fellow and can guess the reason. After the minimum required number of days of mourning for her husband's passing, Bathsheba moves into the palace, where her status is upgraded from adulterous fling to wife. This makes Bathsheba David's eighth named wife. When the time comes for their baby to be born, Bathsheba issues forth a son to David. Well, if you've been waiting for the shoe to drop and for me to finally have a problem with David, this surely is that moment. Oh boy, is this that moment. But before you get all high and mighty on him, uh, that position belongs solely to me. If you look at this for a minute, you'll see you've walked in the same steps. Sure, you haven't murdered someone in order to hide your adultery with their spouse, but let us look at the anatomy of sin that's played out in this heretofore hero's life. First, I want you to think back to last week's episode, or listen to it again, and be reminded of the last significant thing that happened to David before this. I've just made my destiny-altering covenant with him. I've just made David the fulcrum on which the Abra plan pivots from ancient history into the 21st century and, in fact, beyond into eternity. I've just put David in the very exclusive club of those through whom the rescue of the entire human race comes. To say that this was a big moment in his life is an understatement. It was a big moment in his millennium. And even though there's no sentence in the owner's manual that says explicitly that after his amazingly intense exchange with Yahweh that made him a uniquely important figure in the salvation of humanity, David let his guard down and relaxed a little too much. It might as well be in there. There's no denying its truth, and here's where you come in. You have felt the same way and done the same thing too, in terms of having an intense spiritual experience of some kind and then letting your guard down and letting your living slip across the line into darkness. You haven't worked your way to murder, but those of you who've walked on the way a while know a good deal, if not all, about this. You've come off a really important moment in life with me, whether you've realized it or not, and then on some level you've thought a little along these lines. That was really great, but really intense and demanding. I deserve some downtime after that. It doesn't even have to be an intense experience with me if you're not firmly on the way yet. Merely attending a church service may rack up some kind of point value in your psyche where you feel you've earned some time at behavior will say you wouldn't like the folks at that church seeing you doing. That's not the way we work, pal. It's not just the novice who experiences this. David is no novice with me. We've made that clear and pointed out his faithfulness and trust in us. It should then come as no surprise that many of you professional followers experience in spades this letdown we're describing. Pastors and priests are more likely to misbehave on a Sunday night than at any other time of the week because of this very phenomenon. It's like they feel entitled to some time on the other side of the fence 
because they've been faithful to me long enough to do what's expected of them. Obviously, the cause of your crossing over the line is not in having a great experience with me or with my people or in serving me and my people. It's in your feeling of entitlement afterward that leads you to say, or at least feel, I'll handle the rest of the day on my own. I've got this. Of course, you're not blatantly going after darkness at first. There's just a sub or semi-conscious take a break from Yahweh for a while on your heart. You can see this in David, but you have to look for it and actually notice that something's missing. We have our awesome exchange in 2 Samuel 7, where we declare our covenant with David, and then he prays his sincere, humble prayer of thanks and praise, all remarkably beautiful. Then the owner's manual lapses back into reporting on battles, notably in chapters 8 and 10 of 2 Samuel. Do you remember a common theme in the previous accounts of David's military outings? I've actually just pointed it out. Earlier, David first asked me what I thought he should do before charging in. 2 Samuel 5.19 is a perfect example. David inquired of Yahweh, Shall I go up against the Philistines? However, examine the text from chapter 8 and following, and you'll find that David makes no such inquiry of me after our big covenant moment together. The chapters between that high point and David's adulterous episode with Bathsheba contain no mention of David's seeking me or my will whatsoever. It's as if he's either assuming that he doesn't need to ask any more, he does, or that the big covenant moment happened as a result of his being so very strong and wise, and he is thus able to proceed in various affairs of state without our assistance. He isn't. So David is in essence on a break from me in his heart, not reaching out to me, not asking for my guidance, and piloting himself through waters he doesn't realize are getting more and more dangerous. Look in your own life, and you'll see the gradual progression away from me. He doesn't go home from the big covenant moment and hop in bed with Bathsheba that same night, though some of you religious professionals do hop in the wrong bed on Sunday night. You went through a progression to get to the point you're at now. I know you know I know what you're doing. Stop it. It takes time for David's heart to change to harden, and his heart hardens because he pulls it away from us, removing it from my presence, making his spiritual senses and sensitivities dull, and the hard crust of a shell begins to form on himself. Friend, look into your own heart and check for signs of this hardening. It can and will happen to the best of you. Just look at David, the man after my own heart. Look into your own heart and guard against these things, and if they are already underway, call on me, and we will walk together back on the way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 
15minutesontheway.com. You can find a link to our Patreon page there as well. We're sponsored by the Oakhaven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website graphics, kennyeicherart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.